the whole truth and nothing but the truth. It sounds like uh, the first clause of a Judas Prudence teaching this morning. It's like, I don't know, in computer language, Richard, you, you'd know better. Who are the computer gurus here? Got some computer people. They talk about ones and zeros, eh? It's like computer language. If you're going to program a computer language, it comes down to ons and offs, or ones and zeros. Or It's like black or white. It's yes or no. And the, the kingdom programming is also built around two extreme ones and zeros. You know, and you want to know what those, that one and zero is? Sorry, someone shouted. Yeah, I guess we could stretch it, but, but in its essence, it's truth and error. Truth and lies. And that is the computer language that God has worked through this creation and into our lives and from us. Truth and lies. It goes right back to the garden. Man was given a truth. He chose to believe a lie. And what a mess that's been. Hello? Everything in life goes around, I'm programmed from young. If I'm told that is white, that speaker box, and everyone else knows it's black, but if I'm taught it's white, what's it to me? It's white. It's not that I'm wrong. It's not a right or wrong thing. It's just, we only can believe what we've been taught. So faulty thinking comes from faulty teaching. And having believed it, not, not believed it in a sense of um, wanting to be like alternative, but just believed it because that was the truth presented to you. So a lot of us have a lot of stuff going on in our minds that we hold to as true that's not necessarily true. Then Jesus comes along and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus comes and said, for 4,000 years through a nation called Israel, my father has been trying to re-educate the fallen, stinking thinking of man who was obsessed with self-preservation and selfishness and anxiety and fear, my father has been trying to put a system together working with the nation to dispel the lies and bring the right time, the fullness of time, when truth himself, who is Jesus, can appear. And he says, when you've heard from me, you've heard from the father. The most truthful thing ever said. I often wonder why he starts some of his sentences with, truly, truly, I say to you. As if he's got a qualifier. It's like Jesus, you know. He's only the truth itself personified. He's only the truth itself in its essence. But he says, truly, truly, I say to you. He, he, wants, he wants to kind of get a message across. And all our lives... We have this 
Ones and zeros, ones and zeros, programming going on all the time. It's in the media. It's in articles we read. It's in fake news. It's in misinformation. It's in disinformation. Sometimes you don't know what to believe anymore. I love it that Jesus meets with these men on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. And he takes the scripture, which they were familiar with. Full of ones and zeros. Ones and zeros. But like those, you know those collages that have got no picture, but they're just lots of colors and you stare, and if you stare long enough, it becomes a three-dimensional picture. What are those things called? Come on, Heather, you clever with that stuff. You know what I'm talking about. Those pictures, you, you stare at, and as you stare, ah, you see a horse. It's called algogram or contra-algrophysogram. None of you knew, so I took a stab at it. (laughs) Naughty girl. Naughty girl. So Jesus takes the same scripture that they'd been staring at and come up with a concoction of guilt, driven, law and order, punishment, judgment, sacrifice, which was part of the language and the furniture being prepared for the truth, the diamond to be presented, like we saw in the play last week. It all revolved around Jesus. The whole crimson thread from the fallen belief in a lie in the garden right through the covenants where God is trying to panel beat their minds into some kind of receptivity that He is a God who wants to bring a, a substitution for their errorcy, for their error, and He wants to pave a way through blood that His own Son, which is the Son of God, God Himself in the flesh, as both God and man, can come into this fallen world and show us what the Father's really like. Because you can stay at this book as much as you like. And the picture that comes back is often just a reflection of the God we've created in our own image. That is scary. If we do not make Jesus the center of our... Exegesis is the big word. It's the lenses that we look at the scripture through. If we don't make his words and him in his finished work. The means through which we come to the whole gospel, we can come up with a variety of things that can lead us to crusade wars and murder people to the other extreme of becoming totally passive and not doing anything. I don't know, I read somewhere, I've just, just been reminded now, that they design these glasses, certain pair of glasses, that make everything the other way around. So right is left and left is up is down. And it's, can you imagine how dis- like, disillusioned, like, and, um, disorientated you'd be? And disillusioned. How disorientated you'd be. But here was the proof in the test that eventually the brain had the capacity to figure it out. 
And over the course of this experiment, the brain got cleverer and cleverer and adapted to being able to go left, although it was seeing right, and go down even though it was seeing up. That is the elasticity of the brain's material. That stuff floating around in your skull. It's got the ability to be changed. And Jesus comes on the scene. He meets with these guys on the road to Emmaus. And he opens the scripture, the same picture they've been staring at, the ones and zeros from Genesis to, to uh, Malachi. And he opens it up. And what does the Bible say? He begins to show him who he is. From the garden. To Abraham, Moses, baby Jesus. Jesus crucified. Jesus resurrected. Jesus ascended. He takes the Old Testament books. He didn't have, Jesus didn't even have the Apostle Paul's epistles yet. I mean, they came like much later. He takes those books. That's why it's important for us to understand how Jesus saw the whole picture, the whole crimson thread. But here's a cliche word that's been used a lot, and in its use, it's lost some of its effectiveness is the finished work of the cross. That statement. If I get up here this morning and every third sentence I throw in the finished work of the cross, the finished work of the So you mean Jesus died and rose again. That's the finished work of the cross. Jesus said it is finished on the cross. Is that what you mean? Well, it includes that. But it's much more than that. You see, Jesus was both 100% God, God's word to mankind. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I only speak what I hear the Father say. But at the same time, he was 100% man, and he was your word to God. He was your word to God. He was your word to God. He felt your anxiety. He felt your fear. He felt your sense of responsibility. He saw people around him get sick. And didn't know what to do about it. Because remember, he only came under the anointing of the Spirit in his 30s. In his 20s, he saw some of his neighbors die just from a little finger infection. He saw the trauma. He saw the tears. He grieved. And he called out to God, his father, day and night saying, Look, my dad, you never meant it to be like this. This wasn't your purpose. And his father says, you know, that's right. You see... The finished work of the cross is not just Jesus on the cross. It's Jesus in the carpenter shop. It's Jesus on his way to shul Bible study on a Friday night. It's Jesus running the errands in his house. It's Jesus going through all the stuff emotionally, mentally, and then having to face the rejection of the very people who said, Hosanna, Hosanna, he who comes in the name of the Lord, oh, bless his name, who was shouting, crucify him, kill him. He faced that rejection. His own disciples forsake him. And then he felt your total Loneliness. 
Jesus experienced your moment of your worst loneliness. And on your behalf, he said to the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And a further reading of that psalm shows that the Father never forsook him. Never, ever, not in a million years. In fact, the Father was with Jesus on the cross. How could he forsake him? The finished work of the cross is everything about the life and the work of Jesus. And now, our computers, the ones and zeros, are being brought back into alignment that as we keep meditating, as we keep focusing, as we keep hearing, the picture's starting to change. And it's a scary transition. Because even now, after 50 years of studying, uh, 40, 43 years of studying the gospel, I, I sometimes find myself going, oh, Lord, I'm seeing things that if you told me 30 years ago, I would have burnt you at the stake as a heretic. That when Jesus cried out, it is finished. He meant your worst weakness, your worst moment of depression, your worst iniquity, your worst promiscuity, your worst abuse, the worst travail you've ever been or ever inflicted. He took that. He experienced it. And he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. They've seen a picture of you that is so distorted that when they say they don't believe in God, neither did Jesus believe in the God that they said they didn't believe in. Because it wasn't his Father. Jesus knew his Father was. And he says, if you've seen me, I'm the final benchmark. Can you see how our minds are being renewed? There was a time we just saw Jesus in his humanity, and we accepted there was a historical figure. And we went to Sunday school, and we were talking about good Jesus that healed the blind and gave the deaf their hearing. And then we got to a point where it became personal, and we called it inviting Jesus into our heart. You know, well, I don't know if our heart's big enough for him, but certainly his heart's big enough for you. So, yes, there was that, that moment in time when Jesus moved from the historical Jesus, the Jew, Messiah, to my Savior, my Lord, the one who takes my sins away. And then there's been a journey to understand that we need a glimpse, like John did on the Isle of Patmos, Incidentally, when we were in Turkey, we, we could in the distance see islands that maybe one of them was the Isle of Patmos as we were looking across the Mediterranean. And he was looking the other way. He was looking towards the mainland. And he stood there, but suddenly his vision was just filled with lightning and fire and, and metal that goes white hot in the furnace and 
peals of thunder and loud noises and an experiencing battle to put into words with his limited worldview. And in that moment, he had this epiphany of this mighty Christ and he fell on his face. Who is Jesus for you? John saw something that completely rocked his worldview from being the disciple that Jesus loved and laid his head against his breast and knew that that was the Father's voice. And then he saw this magnificent epiphany, majestic rainbows, colors, sounds that have never been heard before. That's the Jesus that was before all time in eternity and created all things, both the things that are visible and the things that are invisible, who said, let there be light, and light burst out at billions of light seconds, miles per second into the universe, expanding trillions of galaxies. He spoke and said, let there be Light. You see, even in the darkest of situations, he can see light working in his favor. Never be scared of darkness. One word into darkness. That's just by the way, okay? Yet we see Jesus standing up next to the Father's throne when Stephen gets stoned, like stoned. And Stephen looks up into heaven and he says, I see Jesus. I see him standing next to the Father. Who who was right, John or, or, or Stephen? Stephen saw the man Christ Jesus because Jesus ascended as a man and there's a man in heaven right now. He didn't get some kind of, he didn't get demolecularized like into like a gaseous, spacious, like ghost thing, and now he's hovering around the throne. The Bible says the man, Christ Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the man, Christ Jesus, at the throne. You see, when we come and look at him from an earthly point of view, from a scene-created worldview, we've got to fall on our faces because we're not ready for that. When our soul is at a place of divine intimacy, we feel his presence. We say with Paul, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who's living in me and I in him. And he said, you will be in me and I'll be in the Father. And there's this beautiful dance between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we've been called into. The Greek word for that is periokosis. It's around and, and together. It's facing one another. It's not facing outward. Like a part, it's facing in, it's huddled inwardly together, and we're part of that union. But when it comes to being in the very throne room, the uncreated, unseen world, something magnificent happens. We see Jesus, our brother, the firstborn from the dead, the first resurrected of all the sons that would follow him. Not firstborn as in born the first time. He'd really been even born on earth before that. But he was the first of the new family. And the new family, my friend, is called the new creation. 
That's the, new crea- that's the new family. It's got a name. It's new creation. I'm a new creation. Yes, we are a new creation. We are the new creation. Jesus is the new creation. And in him we are the new creation. This is bigger than just about me and Jesus in my heart, and I'm going to go around and you know, get rich because Jesus is on my side. No, this is about I've been connected into the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I get to interact with Jesus as the man on the right-hand side of glory. The Jesus, the man, will look at you face to face, eyeball to eyeball, and you will know it's Him. And He says, you know what? In the same way, those guys on the road to Mass, they said our hearts got warm. They moved from like level one, historic Jesus, to level two, heart Jesus. And I hope they're around long enough to hear Paul's revelation on the third heaven, Jesus. Because the created scene is the physical universe with a physical sky or heaven, it's sometimes called. Where the birds fly. fly. The birds fly in heaven, the sky. But then there's the seen, I mean the unseen created, which is the world of the of spiritual world. It's the world that so much of the cult is trying to tap into because they're ahead of the Christians. A world where there's not just a limit of three dimensions. There could be some uh, astro, uh, quantum physics are now saying there could be as much as 11 dimensions. Yeah, sorry, I'm running a bit sideways, yeah? A dimension is three dimensions. is this way, this way, and this way. We live in that. That's Einstein proposed a fourth, which was time. But quantum physics today are saying there's something like 10 or 11. We live in this little three box. We have no idea what's going on around us. It's a created, but it's unseen. It's the world of spiritual reality. It's the world of the demonic. It's the world of the angels. It's the world of the power of our words at work. It's the world of where fear can actually incubate and produce after its own kind. And then there's the unseen, uncreated of God, the third heaven. It's the place where only God can dwell and those that are included in His Son, the new creation. And I mean, I've probably got nothing that I pre- didn't really preach. But he, say Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. That chair you're sitting on right now is made up of atoms spinning around in a formation that makes a plastic atom. I don't know all the quantum physics stuff. I'll make up terms again. It's the cohesive bondedness of um, neutrons and electrons spinning in a circumferential direction. That chair you're sitting on is being held together by the one who created everything. Everything in this three-dimensional 
seen created world is held together by him. But then it goes further. He gave us this incredible body as a, oh, you know, I'm a little bit sci-fi in my brain, but you know they put that like, that little car thing on the moon and they drove it from a shuttle and they would drive it left and drive it right and drive it back. And then they took it even further to, anyone see the movie Aviator? It's like where you can actually drive a person, but then you're seeing through their eyes, hearing through their ears, tasting through their mouth, but you're in a, on another planet somewhere, but they don't put you there because it's dangerous and your body will die. So they put this other thing there and they, you actually live your life. An avatar, thank you, Janet. Pronunciation wasn't my top score at school. And in some aviation type of way, avatarian type of way, sorry, you are negotiating through a different environment. God creates us with this body that can smell and enjoy the beauty of his creation. Explore, travel to different lands, eat different foods. Yeah, go, go Chinese. Yeah, make some more sushi. Heaven's going to be full of sushi, by the way. And then there's sounds, beautiful sounds, soft sounds, classical sounds. Bird music, animal, the roar of a lion, Jimi Hendrix. No, not for you. Only me and Raymond relate on that. Okay. And he's put us in the, on this beautiful planet. And all we had to do was believe the truth. When God said, don't. And man said, at least, actually, woman, technically, our will. <laughs> I will lead my husband astray. <laughs> and in, in this tragedy, this high mutiny, man's mind becomes deformed because the ones and the zeros started bouncing out of order. And it wasn't so much that he would die physically and drop down dead, but his way of seeing the picture would change and there would be a problem created that God didn't give up on because he wasn't going to give up on you and you were coming down the line or you because he already knew you were coming down the line or you. He didn't just write the end. He said, my son, we're going to fix this problem. We're going to change this situation. And the son said, Dad, I'm ready whenever. And the Holy Spirit said, I'm all over this. I'm all over this. Let's not fear what first Adam's going to do. Because we've got a much better plan that includes first Adam. But it is fulfilled in last Adam. And it includes my beautiful creation. And the earth is groaning for the sons of God to be manifest and to rise up. In the understanding that we're not just living here as territorial terra firma beings. We're not just living at a soul level which connects the spirit and the physical level. But we're living seated in Christ right now. It's, it's not just a fancy wish of mine. 
Now I call myself up and I go, yes, all this stuff about seated in him, being in, the, in heaven right now. He says, am I not just trying to convince myself? And I went, hang on. I don't have to convince myself. Because it's true. Right now, your spirit is in Christ in heavenly places. You don't have to pretend it. You don't have to force yourself to believe it. It just is. My part to play is am I going to live from that position or am I going to live from this position? Unseen, uncreated, the created, seen, the seen, created. My body, the vehicle, my soul, the bridge between my spirit seated in heavenly places. Look at this. Therefore, leave, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ. Level one. I think you got that. And go on to, oh, here's a thought. We've got to mature. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from or changing my mind from a lifestyle and acts that lead ultimately to death, but of faith in God. Level two living is a life of faith. Level three living is a life of faith. It's faith in the one whose finished work included living the life that I found impossible, dying the death I found impossible, and my resurrection, which was impossible. And in this place, he says, come, live from heaven. Come live from heaven a little bit. Come and live from heaven and let me show you what a husband looks like. He said, Jesus was never married. Yeah, but he's got a great bride. I thought I'd get like response from that. Jesus says, living from heaven, you can be the greatest parent on earth. But Jesus didn't have children. Oh, really? Sons and daughters? Again, I thought I'd get a response. Jesus doesn't, Jesus said, you, you, you want to run your business well? Live from heaven. Live from who you are in me. Live from the finished work as I was as a man. And I'll show you how to run your business. You say, well, what business did Jesus do? Oh, like he's only been running the church for 2,000 years. That's better. Interpretation, please. That's okay. As long as they're preaching the gospel. So, leaving the elementary teachings of the historical Jesus, going on to maturity involves two very important things, which is Changing my mind from certain things and changing my mind towards other things. I did a little bit of work on that word at the end there, faith in God. See that? End of faith in God. So, so, so it's, it's renewing how I see the dots and the ones and zeros. But it's, it says faith in God. Now, my immediate response was, 
oh, that's probably a case for saying faith of God. You know, it's the latest buzzword now. Everybody, it's not faith in, it's faith of. And it's true if the accusative of the sentence, the object, is in the genitive form. Then you can translate faith in Christ as faith of Christ. So it's a little bit... um, prone to, to, to abuse or uh, interpretation, and, and, and it's a little bit, um, what's the word for omni, uh, it can go two ways. What's that, there's a word for that. Anyway, so I thought, let me go and check this word out, faith in God, because in Galatians 2.20, it says, I no longer live by the faith of Christ. Quite correct, because the object of that sentence, the accusative, is qualified by the genitive. And in that case, it's of. It's the faith of. It's God's faith. So I went, so I thought, let me go and check this out. Let me not just get up and sign and say it's the faith of God. Let me go. And I found out it's actually not in the genitive. It's in the a dative mood. Now, a little technical, but you'll get it. The dative is qualifying the word theos. And it lends, leans to, not towards faith of God, but faith in the presence of God. Or faith towards God. Ambiguous. That's the word I was looking for. The, the, the interpretation of the of clauses in Scripture, the of gods, of God, of Christ, of Christ, of man, of If it's not in the... If the accusative, which is the object of a sentence, which is a noun, isn't qualified by a genitive, or is qualified, it can be translated of. But if it's not, it's got to be translated in or other. And in this case, all the commenters agreed with this little assumption, the faith of, the faith before. So just think of yourself now. You're repenting from works that lead to death, and you're coming and standing in a place of faith before God. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Faith before God means you're standing in the finished work of the cross. Because you're standing in the perfect life Jesus lived for you and as you. You're standing in the place where you can be the best husband, businessman, politician, sportsperson, songwriter, artist, because you're standing in someone who qualifies you by faith before the Father. The Father sees you as his son. It's when your child comes and stands before you. What do you see? If it's... So it would be the, the son of Trevor, but here it's son before Trevor. In the presence of, in the sight of, in the view of. I don't, I don't know, that kind of got my... Jesus flying a bit. But then I'm a bit of a nerd. You know, a bit of a Greek nerd. So when I see things like that, I'm like, wow. It makes so much more sense. I'm going on to maturity. I'm not going to get into this teaching now. Time is is gone. I'll, I'll carry on next week. What are these things 
that we change our mind about? What are these ones and zeros that we need to change our mind about? And what is this faith before God? What does it look like at a heart level, at a, at a mind level, at an emotion level, at a will level? So all those that were on bicycles this morning and went back home to have a shower, you're welcome to come to part two next week. But to you who've been sitting patiently listening, I hope something has stirred you up. I hope something has come across. We're moving on to maturity, church. Come on, we're becoming mature. Yes, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We are maturing as sons and daughters. Let's stand up together. Lord, as we come and we just say thank you, that truth is setting us free. Because Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Thank you, Lord, we're no longer controlled by lies. Lies about our identity, lies about our achievements, lies about who we are, lies that make us feel ashamed, lies that make us feel like failures, lies that make us feel intimidated, lies that make us feel disqualified, lies, 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 no longer controlled by lies, because truth has come. And we stand before the Father in the truth, as the truth, and for the truth. And this morning we say, Lord, may our minds be so renewed. May our thinking be so challenged. May we leave this place with a deep hunger to know you better and more. You're awesome. You're wonderful. And remember, this is the first day of your week. Have a great Tuesday. God bless. Amen. Thanks, Dave.